Hello and welcome to the podcast, Letters from the Lunchroom. This is a special episode of Letters from the Lunchroom produced by Communities in Schools of Mid-America in partnership with the National Office of Communities in Schools. I'm Ray Saldana, President and CEO of Communities in Schools, a national organization that believes all students, no matter their race, gender, zip code, or background, should have the opportunity they need to realize their full potential in school and beyond. And our work is simple. We have a staff of caring adults working inside schools all across the country. They connect kids to critical resources that might be missing in their lives, like food or housing, healthcare, remote technologies, and counseling. In that way, we allow students to remove barriers to learning so that they can take charge of their education and their future. Today, I'm guest hosting this episode along with my colleague, Janine Kihihe, who serves as Chief Advancement Officer in our national office and who joined our team earlier this year. Welcome, Janine, to Letters from the Lunchroom and, of course, to Communities and Schools. Hi, Ray. I'm excited to be here for this podcast takeover and with much gratitude to Victoria Partridge for trusting us to do so. So coincidentally, and as part of my onboarding, I listened to your conversation with Victoria in December. It was extremely helpful to me to hear directly from you as our newest leader to foster a better understanding of the vision for your work. And today, I, I know that we're going to be having a conversation about a very large barrier to learning that millions of students have experienced over the last year. And what can we do as an organization, a community, and as a country to help students overcome that barrier? So let's start talking about that barrier, which is the pandemic and the shutdown of schools. Ray, after my first week on the team, I learned of a startling fact. Nearly 3 million students potentially missing from physical and virtual classrooms since the start of the pandemic. 3 million students who have not logged on to their virtual classrooms. Where are these students? Janine, first of all, I'm just so grateful that uh, you're, you're joining our team and, and so grateful that we get to share this conversation uh, in what feels like uh, an opportunity for you and I to get to know one another, but also to describe the fact that we came into this work uh, at, a, at just an incredible time in history. And this question around the 3 million students who have not logged on to their virtual classrooms, who may not yet have been discovered or showed up to in-person learning, it, it just reminds us of, of what can happen when a crisis strikes any of the students that we work with. And our staff all across the country are no strangers to what it, what it is to deal with students who are suffering from a crisis or suffering from a need or a barrier. These, these, these components of life uh, where curveballs are being thrown at you and you've got to react to them. And so as we think about uh, what does it look like, feel like to, to have three million students just all of a sudden fall off of, of the radar of our schools? It, it's just it seems like an impossible number. But when you start to think about uh, schools reporting, you know, their percentage of students who, who are missing, who are not showing up, uh, it really calls to us uh, to act in a different way. And, and when we say that at communities and schools, we're working in schools and now beyond, it means that we are you know, knocking on doors, that we are working uh, with students in front porches, that we are calling not just once, twice, or three times, we're calling a dozen times uh, to ensure that we are finding students to get them reconnected 
with their communities of support in many places in, in many cases the school is the safest place for some of our students and it is the place where they can most reliably count on a connection with a caring adult or even with with food that day and so uh, the three million students comes from early estimates that we've seen uh, from a few different studies uh, that have has gone state by state places like state of texas where it's about 250,000 students at the beginning of the pandemic who were missing in a place like uh, florida that's 90,000 students uh, and we already know that absenteeism uh, is an indicator it's a telltale sign of of, of problems that exist that uh, may need to be addressed before a student can really reconnect with their learning, reconnect with school. And so the pandemic has just thrown this into um, a really difficult time for not just the student, but their entire family. And I think anybody who's listening to, to this can relate to um, how, how some things fall below the priority line and, and ensuring that your family is safe and healthy and well taken care of is important, but we at communities and schools believe that we can be part of, of that community and ensure that the families are safe and well taken care of. So three million is jarring. Um, and unfortunately it, it, it feels so much like the truth when we, when we talk to our staff and our school partners. I know you live in San, San Antonio specifically and our community school affiliate, like many others across the country that you've just described, has been out in the community trying to locate these students what has that process been like in San Antonio? Yeah, well, that's a great question, um, Janine. Thinking about um, you know my experience before joining Communities and Schools as as the leader of the national office, I, I served for eight years at the local level on the city council, and in that work, uh, what we often what I often had to do is is work in the communities, knock on doors, and I know how how tough it is sometimes to get somebody to engage with a community that they have already disconnected with. And the work in San Antonio, like the work in Charlotte, like the work in Kansas, like the work in Ohio, uh, is teaching our staff, our, our CIS communities and school staff, a new way uh, of connecting with their families. And in many cases, uh, what we are finding out is, is more about the student by finding out more about where they live and, and reconnecting with families in a way that we haven't gotten to do in the past, uh, which is sometimes literally at their doorsteps, and in many cases problem solving for things that may have may or maybe or currently happening in those communities or in those households, and and staff is reporting back uh, a new, you know, sense of 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 empathy, a, a new sense of understanding about what it really takes uh, to do the work and to live the mission at communities and schools. And in that way, whether it's in San Antonio or another one of the communities that we work with, uh, we're finding out um, how hard it can be to disconnect students who have disconnected from learning and disconnected from school for several months now. And, and we know the, the impacts and the disproportionate uh, effect that's going to have on, on many of our students, many of them uh, who are students of color, black or brown or indigenous living in communities where generational poverty has had a grip on the success of most students. And it's in that context that uh, we have to continue to ensure that we're unlocking potential with our students. I've heard you say often that getting them back inside the school building or just back online for virtual classes is only the beginning, that we really need to focus on getting them re-engaged in learning. Can you say more about that? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think about this work around, um, you know, what is the most immediate thing that we need to get done right now? And if there is a house on fire, of course, we've got to put it out and we've got to uh, ensure that everyone is safe. And that feels like what we're doing right now. So whether you are a school leader, a principal, a teacher, uh, in our case, communities and school staff who have been working with students, the fact that many of uh, our staff members are uh, uh, manning and patrolling uh, food lines along with our food pantries, working with uh, housing agencies to find stable and affordable housing for uh, for families who may have lost a job or are being particularly hit by uh, by the oncoming recession. That's job number one. And so we, we need to focus on ensuring that our students are safe and healthy and feel like they are being supported. But beyond that, we at Communities and Schools at the National Office are really thinking about what it looks like uh, to ensure that we're creating an equitable school climate. And so that when students are returning, uh, those who had been uh, disconnected and who may have had really difficult trouble with virtual learning, never really had a stable uh, internet connection and are gonna feel like they are behind coming back. Those are students with with pressures on, on them that um, didn't need to exist and are uh, unfortunately a reality. So re-engaging and reconnecting with those students is going to mean that we're connecting them with them on a, on a social level, on an emotional level, on a physical level. And, and our schools uh, need, to, need to replicate the kind of, of love and care that you would find in any home. And, and that's what I think a lot of students have been missing and that stability, and so they've been missing these components. So when we think about what it looks like to re-engage students, it means that we are continuing the relationship in this really strong doubling down approach on ensuring that we are getting to know the student, that we are focusing not just on, on catching up to their learning. And I think, and I predict that could be uh, a little bit of a, of, a, of a mistake if we focus exclusively on getting that student right back on track with, with math or history or algebra or learning around uh, their writing or their grammar without focusing on all of the real issues that are, are really holding that student back when they are you know, not showing up uh, in school again. So re-engagement really means we're creating a school climate around uh, how we approach uh, a loving environment that is equitable for these students who have been disproportionately hit and impacted. And uh, we're working with a lot of great uh, researchers and, and teams who are going to bring new tools to our site coordinators to ensure that they are better able to have conversations with students and their families, as well as those educators on campus to be leaders uh, in creating that environment, uh, that, that, that place where a student can really breathe. And uh, Janine, if I can, I want to maybe just uh, take the reins of the conversation here a little bit. I want to ask uh, you a question, if I can. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the most obvious barriers our students and families have faced this year uh, with the pandemic, the shutdown of school buildings and, and economic uncertainty. But let's talk about the other major disruption to their, their social and emotional well-being, the reckoning with the country's history of racial injustice. So I want to hear maybe what, what's your personal opinion, how you feel or about how you feel young people have, have, been, have been impacted by this. So, Ray, as you know, as we're recording this podcast, it is the second week of the trial of Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd nearly a year ago. We are reliving the trauma through the lens of the many witnesses who lived this tragic and dehumanizing encounter, many who were minors. So I don't need to imagine the trauma young people are facing, 
I can hear it in the testimonies of this trial. But we all witnessed this, whether it was in person or on our television screens. For a young person who does not yet have the understanding and context of what systemic racism is, seeing these images of someone who looks like their father or uncle or other loved family member, that can be a very scary reality for them. But what's also important to note is that Black people did not start experiencing systemic racism when non-Blacks started to notice. But these are the issues that have plagued Black and Brown communities prior to 2020, including in our education system. So you made a point earlier with regards to the real issues. So part of being making sure that, part of ensuring that we have equitable climates for learning is really addressing these real issues. So Janine, I was just thinking through this real experience of how we we consume all of the information um, that is that is hitting us every single day. If we're you know at home, we're being safe. We've been on lockdown. There's been so much that has built up in our social media feeds and our news feeds, and and a lot of us want to know what it is that we can do. And so thinking about what it looks like to achieve equity, especially in education is something that we work for every day, but it's clear that we cannot, we can't do this, we can't do this work alone. Recently, you know, we've been thinking about our work as as leading a change movement that includes individuals and institutions. That That's part of your role at Communities and Schools. So can you say more about how the conversation you're having with people and organizations across the country, well, what are they telling you about this moment in public education and are they with us? Sure, that's a really great question because as we all know, we've been having these conversations for so long. And I would say that one thing that has certainly shifted is our collective consciousness and responsibility to be better and understanding the history of our nation. This shows up in the many conversations I have with our team, our staff, our external stakeholders. And not that Black, Indigenous, and people of color need permission to speak, but it has given us permission to have honest conversations that can be uncomfortable at times. So what I do appreciate is that everyone that I do speak with, whether it's a funder, a staff member, or a board member, recognizes that we have a responsibility to be better and a willingness to not only learn and understand, but a genuine commitment to do our part to level the playing field for all of our students. So for that, I am grateful, and it gives me hope that we have finally arrived at the starting point for this change to create a more equitable environment for our students. So Ray, you know, another starting fact that I recently came across that I like um, to get your, your reactions to is the effect of the pandemic with regards to the number of high school graduates who immediately went on to college, which has fallen in 2020. And it's by nearly 7% compared with the previous year. And more specifically, the number of graduates enrolling in high school fell 11.4% for high-poverty high schools as compared to a drop of only 2.9% at low-poverty high schools. What is your reaction to that? You know, well, Janine, I want to I want to start by saying um, something that I think we've all heard before, um, which is that we didn't really have a lot of these statistics that are impacting um, the students and the communities that we know are hit the hardest by any crisis. We didn't really have this figured out before the pandemic. And so my reaction to that is I remember, uh, you know, I grew up in, on the south side of, of San Antonio. It's where I'm making this call from now. And I'm maybe two minutes away from my high school. And I remember in, in my high school uh, what it's like growing up in a community that, you know, had a 
schools that uh, weren't well resourced, had high turnover of, of teachers and, and uh, administrators, how that created an environment. And we talk about equitable conditions. I remember graduating and, and feeling this, this great pride because I was able to, you know, with the help of our communities and school staff, really try to strive for something. And even as I was striving to do that, I was trying to get to college, which nobody in my family had done before. And I had just you know, known more people who had dropped out than I had known who actually graduated. And, and so I was so proud of the fact that I got to graduate top three in my class. And I didn't realize how important that was because I, as I looked at the statistics for my high school. Um, there was only 3% of our graduating class that was college ready. And and I graduated number three. So by the very you know, skin of my teeth, I think I, I was college ready, but I recognized as soon as I got into college that I wasn't ready for the for the content, where it wasn't ready for um, what college was gonna throw at me. And I think when we think of, we consider that, like that was before the pandemic. And, and now the world has just gotten so much more difficult to navigate for our students, especially those who are seniors and, and juniors in high school, who are trying to balance the concept of, of, of going away from home or going to college, taking on the burdens of, of the cost of college at the same time that they've had to get an extra job because one of their parents or both of their parents who were essential workers were laid off at the beginning of the pandemic and don't want to you know, leave, leave their parents behind. And I, I, I say that in a very intentional way because there is in many cases in some of these communities and some of the conversations I've had with staff, a guilt for thinking about yourself before you think about your family. And it doesn't surprise me to see some of those st statistics around college enrollment that has fallen and how if you zoom in to uh, students of color or students living in poverty, the picture gets even worse. I think we know this anecdotally through the conversations that we are having with many members of our team, with students who are working fast food with a headphone in their ear so that they can connect to virtual uh, learning at the same time that they're ringing up orders. It is that kind of a of an environment that these students are trying to to survive in and that's why it takes a lot it takes a community of support it takes the level of intensive um, management with our families that that staff at communities and schools is really stepping up to do so ray i know you understand the challenges that some of our students face in getting themselves prepared for post-secondary education because of your own personal story can you share a little bit more about your journey yeah, I want to make sure folks know that um, the, I, I get, I'm so excited that I get, I've gotten to wear so many um, hats throughout my life. I, I, I'm a, you know, I'm the son of my mother and father. My mother and father, neither of them, you know, made it past the eighth grade. My father was an undocumented immigrant for most of my life and most of the time I was going to school. And there is, I think, uh, a pride in that that I share today that I also didn't have uh, when I was going to school. And I think for a lot of students who um, who have parents who either one or both are undocumented, there is a fear uh, of drawing attention to yourself. There is a fear of what the environment, your school might um, say about you if they know that. So I, that was a little bit of my journey down here on the south side of San Antonio. and. Um, having the fortunate pleasure of getting to meet somebody uh, in high school. Her name was Miss Gladys Reyes, who was my site coordinator at, at my communities and schools site coordinator. And she really was somebody who identified in me a potential that helped me unlock this key 
to get to a place uh, after high school uh, to get to college, uh, which again, nobody in my family had done. And I was um, just working so closely with her uh, on, on ensuring that I could afford the, the cost of the application and the test preps and uh, what it looked like to uh, go away to, for the very first time. So that's a little bit of, of how I, you know, how I grew up and in my community. I also wore the hat of being an elected official. So it's funny because when I went away uh, to, to college, I went to Stanford in California. And um, when I left for the very first time, I said to myself, I'm never coming back to San Antonio. San Antonio is too much of a small town for me, I remember thinking. But it's immediately the first place I came back to because I wanted to be part of my community. And I think it tells the story of of alumni that we need to invest in at communities and schools because there is a fire burning in our bellies for wanting to come back and pull other people up, pull other students up. And in much the same way of of getting to do that, um, I came back to San Antonio, I ended up running for office and uh, becoming the youngest member of the San Antonio City Council and serving for eight years. And it was after that uh, tour of duty uh, that I decided I want to continue to try to bring other students up and uh, was lucky and fortunate to be chosen as the next president and CEO of Communities and Schools. So going from student, Communities and Schools student to now uh, the leader of the national organization uh, gives me a lot of pride and, and what an honor that I get to wear this hat. Janine, I'd like to sort of flip again and, and ask you a question. Uh, you, you know a little bit more about my journey, but I want to I'm curious to learn more about your own journey as as a student and, and why it makes you feel connected to the mission and the work of communities and schools. Can can you tell us more about your story? Um, well, Ray, thank you so much, first of all, for sharing your story and just your the inspiration within the context of your story. So there are so many layers to the question with regards to my own story and my journey. And so I will just first of all start by saying that I am the daughter of immigrant parents who came here from a country called Ecuador, um, which is in South America. I'm also a proud native New Yorker, born and raised in Corona, Queens, and in a community of immigrants, which is where my parents landed, <laughs> I suppose, when they, get, when they got here. And what I didn't realize at that time was the inequities that existed in our education system until I became an adult, where I realized through conversations with my peers from more affluent communities, is what they describe as a normal education for them, filled with resources and experiences, was not part of a normal education experience for me. So while I did not have communities and schools in my life, I can certainly say that I, along with my classmates, um, would have certainly benefited from such a program. And, and I would say that that, in a very broad sense, is something that really attracted me to really being part of this work and ensuring that more students have access to the resources that they deserve. And the one additional point, which is important for me personally, is related to my Hispanic culture and identity. So girls are groomed to be wives and mothers with strong domestic skills, not leaders. We have a duty to care for our family. So culture can be a point of tension. When as adults now, we see the potential for our young women. However, that cultural barrier exists. And that's where representation truly matters. We need to make sure that we see more leaders that look like ourselves. We need to make sure that we see more pathways for young women who have similar cultural barriers to make sure that they have the ability to be able to see a pathway that can be realized that's different than their cultural experiences. 
And so academically, as a young person, I was extremely smart. However, because I didn't have a site coordinator in my school through communities and school connecting me with resources and experiences to help me see my potential, I became very disengaged in my schoolwork. So when I think about our work right now with re-engagement, you talk about it with regards to our current moment. How do we re-engage our students with the barriers that exist and that has emerged as a result of the pandemic, which are very real barriers. But I, when I think about our re-engagement work as related to this moment in time, I think about more, more than just our current moment. The engagement work began pre-pandemic and the engagement work and engaging our students with their learning will really outlive the pandemic. And so that's something that we really need to consider. And that's something that makes the role of our site coordinators even more special because they build these really important relationships where they understand the students' identities and they understand their experiences. So when they're trying to meet the um, and respond to those barriers by making sure they are adequately positioned to um, to be successful in their schools, they need to make sure that they're seeing you as, as a Latina student or seeing you as a Black student, seeing you as indigenous, seeing you as all of these different experiences and identities that we show up in our day-to-day lives and what students are experiencing and what does that mean. So that, that cultural piece is something that is really, um, I would say, rooted in my own personal experiences and has been a barrier outside of the, the food insecurities, outside of the housing insecurities. It's just understanding that additional tension that exists. And so we we need to ensure that we're understanding those barriers and then also empowering our students to make sure that they are the author of their story. Janine, thank you so much for just sharing that. I think there's so much power in what you describe as this, this potential, this this ability to unlock uh, the story that that students have, and and your story is one that speaks to that uh, as well, especially as I sort of hear it and think about your journey. And so as as we both know, you know, communities and schools isn't just about empowering students to, to achieve in school. It is about helping students achieve success in life. So for, for some students, that, that does mean going on to college, but for others, it means something something else, something completely different. You've talked to some of the alumni of our program. What are they telling you about how they dis- define success in life? Well, first off, I so appreciate our alum for keeping us honest and holding us accountable in our desire to always be in better. When we think about success and in the simplest forms, what comes to mind is happiness, and financial stability. However, for a high school student, those are not the things we talk about. For them, for them, success looks like getting good grades, going to college, getting a good job, buying a house, having a family, and all of those stories that we've heard um, far too many times. So what happens when they are not on track for that? Does that mean they are unsuccessful? Does that mean they are set up for failure? No, of course not. In order for us to position our students and alum to be successful, we have a responsibility to build better roadmaps to the different paths to success post high school graduation, which ultimately is happiness and financial stability. Our alum play a critical role in helping us to define what success looks like as related to our work in communities and schools. We are not there yet, but we have made a commitment to uncover that and under your leadership to ensure that all of our alum, regardless of what path they choose 
and take in their post-secondary pursuits, they feel they have everything they need to be successful and truly happy in life. And so those are the conversations that I'm having with our alum. And those are the conversations that I'm grateful that they're surfacing for us and to us and continuing to allow us to be better and to be really true and honest in our commitment to ensuring that they are set up for success in life and, and true fulfillment and happiness. You know, Janine, something you said about um, how our alumni, and we've got such a great, you know, uh, a diverse continuum of alumni who are who are striving for some really important definitions of success, they, they, about how they've kept us honest. And I talk to a lot of folks, uh, whether those are heads of our affiliates throughout the country, principals, superintendents, members of the new presidential administration or leaders of foundations, but the group that I'm most nervous about because I, I just, the, their standards are important to me is our alumni. And it, it does mean something for us to take on this, uh, this important work to ensure that we are supporting our students, not just uh, to achieve in school, but also achieve in life. And what that really looks like and means like is something that we're going to hopefully define together with our alumni and, and how we at communities and schools can be helpful. So Thank you for for mentioning that, and let's let's close here by by just telling folks what they can do if if they're listening to this podcast and they want to be part of this change movement. How can they be all in for kids? Well, they can start by visiting our website at communitiesinschools.org to connect with your local affiliates or to learn how you can make a collective impact by supporting communities and schools national. And if you'd like to learn more about either myself or Ray, you can also check out our bios on, on our website as well. Um, and Ray, I know we are out of time, but I want to take a moment to thank you for this great conversation as always and thank our friends at Community Schools of Mid-America for producing Letters from the Lunchroom. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a great rating. I'm Janine Kihihe. And I'm Ray Saldana. Victoria Partridge will be back as your host next episode. So until next time, class is dismissed.